Hello, I'm Dr. Amalia Gondas Malka. Welcome to Womanity Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates women's milestone achievements in their struggle for liberation, self emancipation, human rights, democracy, and much more. Joining us today from Windhoek, Namibia, is the Minister of Justice from the Republic of Namibia, Yvonne Dalsab, who commenced this role in 2020. She is also a 2022 Laureate of the Vera Chirwa Human Rights Award in recognition of her efforts towards the advancement of human rights. Minister Dalsab also holds the Law Society of Namibia's Human Rights Excellence Awards of 2012. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Amelia. It's it's a pleasure to be sharing this platform with you, and I'm looking forward to our conversation this afternoon. Me too. Minister, we've just concluded a series with judges (laughs) from the High Court, Constitutional Court, and Supreme Court of Appeal in South Africa. So justice, the law, and women's rights have been top of mind. What I found is that these conversations not only gave insight into the individuals, but also their contributions to society. And in talking to you, you've had a fascinating career path. Prior to your ministerial appointment, you served as the Deputy Dean of the Faculty of Law at the University of Namibia. You hold an LLB from the University of Western Cape and an LLM from the University of Pretoria. Please tell us what triggered your interest to pursue a career in law? Where did it begin? Okay, well, you know, let me just say that uh, in between being a deputy dean at the Law School of the University of Namibia, I was actually the chairperson of the Law Reform and Development Commission. It's only then um, in 2020 that I uh, was appointed Minister of Justice. Let me start off by just saying that my, my interest in law really started because of the historical context in which we find ourselves, both Namibia and South Africa. You know, the fact that we, I came from an apartheid background and obviously all of the, you know, if you, if you understand apartheid uh, as, a, as both as a concept and also as a tool of oppression, you'd understand that much of apartheid was because of the kinds of laws that were introduced by the apartheid government to use it as a tool to oppress the majority of the, of the people in Namibia, particularly black people. So that was one reason that I thought, you know, if you grow up in an environment like that, what else can you do but use law? Law, and then I have a conception that law should really be used as a tool uh, for social justice. The second thing I think is is I, I sadly experienced a personal tragedy at a very young age when I was about 10 years old, an aunt of mine was brutally murdered by her boyfriend at my parents' house. And, and that experience, you know, and, and my mother was a sole witness. And, and the impact that that experience had on me as a child growing up in that kind of environment. And then also, you know, I lived in, in what we call Soweto, and it was really taken from Soweto in, in, in Johannesburg, South Africa. Um, it, it was for us, Soweto was a place where uh, people mixed because you you know that during apartheid there was a policy to uh, divide and rule and that policy meant that people were divided in various locations in Katutura along tribal lines and so it was the one place where all the tribes uh, met and and so you know that kind of environment also created an environment of gangsterism uh, abuse of alcohol and all of that and and I think that space also let me uh, believe that maybe if I studied law, this would be one of the ways that one could fight 
these kinds of criminal activities uh, in our community. So, so that that more or less explains the context from which I came, but also what led me to want to study law uh, at the time. That is a very powerful lived experience and yeah. I'm sure lots of combinations of, of strong <coughs> motivators. So you went into academia, then you moved into the Law Reform Development Committee and then into government. Walk us through that transition. I'm not even sure it's a transition because if, even as a student, you know, every year I came back, I worked for government, you know, as a clerk. Initially, I was also a principal legal officer in the Ministry of Justice, you know, in a much younger period of time. But you must remember, uh, Dr. Amelia, really, th- there is no, no, migration, if you'd like. There is a bridge. Academia is really a bridge between the people and the government, if you'd like. And and, and I've always struggled these kind these activities. I've always for instance, I was part of a, a program called Dialogue. When I was at the university, the university wanted to uh, bring together or make sure that academia plays a role in policy development, influence the policies and the laws of government. And so they brought a program which I was the anchor for at the time uh, called Dialogue for three years. And and on Dialogue, I would actually interview uh, major players in government, in the private sector, and in academia to talk about the issues that were affecting our people. So it wasn't an an, an uncomfortable transition, if, if you'd like. I do think the, the the one question, the the candid manner in which I approached and asked difficult questions, changed slightly. Obviously, when I became uh, the chairperson of the Law Reform and Development Commission, and and subsequently the Minister of Justice. So it was really just. The, the ability, because I'm also quite adaptable, I think I was able to make the transition. But I have tried to maintain a semblance of independent thinking. Not always easy when you are actually the policymaker and people are asking you the questions and you should be having the answers. But I don't believe in defending a government position at all cost. I think it, it, the, the defense must always be balanced. There must be acknowledgement that there are shortcomings in our service de- delivery activities, perhaps. So it's important to acknowledge if there are shortcomings, but it's also important to recognize the challenges that you are facing in this particular position. I know that people had asked me actually before, you know, how did I manage to, when I was such, I was, luckily, I was maybe not a, a, a very hardened uh, critique of of government at the time because I understood the kind of environment in which one operates when you are when you're leading uh, a country with so many diverse interests and so many diverse needs. It's not an easy space to be. So maybe the migration was not so difficult, but I think it it was challenging in in being at at in in the driving seat now uh, to drive the policies that I was only talking about when I was in the academia. I did not stop talking and publishing on issues that I'm passionate about, particularly matters pertaining to questions around disability rights, questions around sexual minority rights. Um, so I've not, I didn't stop talking about human rights, constitutional issues and so forth. Um, you know, even though I had to do that within the confines of acknowledging my own role and my own privilege 
uh, as, as a minister and where that places me in relation to the people that I'm serving. You're certainly in the driving seat now. And when I think about the Ministry of Justice, especially having this recent experience with the judiciary from a South African context, it's such an incredibly important portfolio to head up. So reflecting on your time in office to date, what would you say are some of the targets that you want to attain? Uh, I must also tell you, uh, Dr. Amalia, our president had a lot of foresight and he was proactive in, in when he appointed us in our different portfolios. So one of the things that the president did was actually in the appointment letter already indicating uh, what are the key things that I would like you to, you know, what were the key targets. And, and among them, and I want to bracket it in two things. The one is the key justice pillars, and then, of course, the appointment letter and what the expectations of the head of state were about his program in office. Um, so, so the Ministry of Justice generally is located within the key strategic objectives of provision of legal services and access to justice. And so everything that we do it needs to respond to those two key strategic objectives. That's, that's one. Number two, there were obviously a number of bills because, you know, apart from the policy, there's a huge uh, legislative agenda that the Ministry of Justice drives, both informed by other ministries, but also by our own activities. And the key ones were we, we wanted to deal with the issue of, of people losing primary homes through repossession by banks. The second one was we want to increase access to justice generally. You'd understand that one of the pillars of justice is legal representation. The Ministry of Justice plays a role in provision of legal aid. If we get about 10,000 applications for legal aid every year, and I know South Africa also has a brilliant legal aid program, and we only approve about seven, between six and 7,000. And the question is always what happens to the 3,000 applications that we were unable to assist. And so the other, the second important target was to get the independent legal profession participate in the provision of legal services. And so we're looking at maybe, if not mandatory, to find some form of an increased activity around pro bono so that the independent legal profession can do something about it. The third is small claims courts. I, I think if, if we can have a workable small claims court, and I know that Uganda has a good example of a brilliant uh, small claims court that works well, you know, and, and would like to take some lessons from them as well. So small claims court is another target. The fourth target is community courts. You know, in other jurisdictions in Africa, it's called uh, traditional courts. Because we think that if people can control, you know, through community courts, we can actually decongest our national courts if the community court system works well. And we've, we've done quite a bit of work because remember, this is my fourth year as the Minister of Justice. So there's been quite a bit of work that we've done in that area. I think the, the other area and maybe the last one uh, for our purposes in terms of key targets is the issue around anti-corruption measures, whistleblower protection and witness protection, an important part uh, if you want more and more people blowing the whistle, particularly when there are serious corporate and government crimes being committed. So we wanted to, have, you know, we have a responsibility to ensure that that happens. 
uh, I know that th we're going to talk a little bit about this uh, going forward, but we also wanted to strengthen our legislation around sexual and domestic or gender-based violence. Um, uh, just lastly, uh, because I know that we've limited time, is that I just wanted to talk to you about the importance that when you talk about justice generally, you need to talk about an increased number of courtrooms, because without courts, you know, you're going to have people uh, complain about the the lack of a proper system of administering justice, delays in cases and so forth. You want to have uh, enough number of, of officials, whether it's prosecution, whether it's defense attorneys, and you want to have a proper system of legal representation. And of course, you, you want to make sure that your court process is fair, your court process is reasonable, and it's timely. If you meet those targets, I think as a Minister of Justice, obviously there are some challenges in that area, but that that was, you know, my thinking. That was the promise I made when I took the oath of office. Thinking about that dynamic of access to legal services and access to justice, you've really made inroads there because often what I find with our environments is that we're very um, widely geographically dispersed, that if you try and bring the people to justice, that they often don't have the means, whether it's about transport, whether it's about taking time off work. Oh, yeah. With you having developed the, the community courts, for instance, and even the small community courts. That's the point. You're taking justice to the people. That's right. So community courts is functional at the moment. That's, I think, one of our best lessons at the moment. Small claims courts is still in its, uh, we've made huge progress. Uh, we've, we've developed a law, but I think the intricacies of, of how to implement it, uh, given our resource limitations, particularly human resource limitations, we're trying to see, uh, you know, we're trying to work with the University of Namibia Law School, um, and, you know, we're trying to work with the Law Society of Namibia uh, to try and pull in the legal profession. So there's, there's still a bit of work that we're doing, but we, I'm hoping that before my term ends, there will be a functional, um, even if it's just a pilot, uh, small claims court in place. Good to hear. Moving slightly away from the law field and tapping into some of your other capabilities, as a female leader, what would you say are some of the strategies, leadership-wise, that you found to be most effective? A few of them. I think the, the one is definitely to support other females, you know, and in real support, you know, whether it is to assist with uh, reviewing, uh, you know, maybe speeches in the National Assembly, if you'd like, uh, or even providing guidance, if you'd like, uh, to other cabinet colleagues. So support of females, I think, is important. And also to focus on key areas of your mandate, because I think sometimes we can get distracted to be involved in all sorts of struggles. Uh, while it's important, I think we must know that you have limits as a human being, firstly, but also you have limits because of the portfolio that you hold at a particular time. So it's important that you focus on on the key uh, mandate that you have. The third one, I think, is is relationships, building relationships across party lines, across gender lines, across various aspects of diversity, because that's what's going to help you see different perspectives that people hold. So, you know, not to be part of cliques and, and clubs. I avoid that. The the other thing that I think I did well is to to be kind in my criticism of other people's work because it helps also with people kind of giving you similar courtesy when you need it. But of course, 
uh, without shying away uh, from providing honest opinions about views that you have, even around the kinds of programs that we are undertaking. The the other issues that I think that are important is the kind of relationship that I have with my staff members and my cabinet colleagues, uh, members of parliament. So building those relationships. And then the other key strategy is you must read and you must always be ready you know, for everything, you know, if, and I think also to participate in activities that brings out your strengths and then you must be available to assist. That's also a strategy uh, in itself. If you are always absent from people's things, so to show up, you know, when time and resources allow to show up is important. I think that for me has kept me kind of sane over the past four and a, almost four and a half years of being the Minister of Justice. Thank you for sharing some of your insights into leadership because no one's got a singular recipe. Everybody does things in a slightly different way. And it's always interesting to see what's new and and what works. I've um, long been an admirer of Namibia in terms of female leadership, particularly in the fact that you've got a female prime minister since I think 2015, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, since 2015. Deputy female prime minister. And I often think about this as a role modeling effect. And if that perhaps encourages women in the country to pursue their ambitions and also be accepted by all. I think that there is certainly to have, you know, the prime minister, the deputy prime minister. Our prime minister was actually the minister of finance. Uh, before she became prime minister, so I think it's it's good role modeling for for young women, uh, even for those of us who came after them to be in these positions. So yes, I agree with you that there is an aspect of role modeling. I, I do wonder though about the question around acceptance by all, because you know whether we we want to accept it or not, the lived realities of many women even professional women, women, even in the legal profession, the conversations are happening. There's still a a great sense of of patriarchal presence. There's still a presence of uh, misogyny, if you'd like. There's still a presence of a men's club, if you'd like. And, And that kind of cascades down to even school levels and in the homes. And so the question for me rather is, it's how men particularly men in positions of power and influence look at the the questions of what kind of men are we bringing up and how do they relate to women so i'm not sure whether there is complete acceptance i think there's tolerance in some instances and there's also a lot of support for the role that women play in in these spaces i have myself as a woman minister experienced some challenges with uh, male colleagues, you know, uh, many of them younger in, in, in lower positions, because as the minister, I'm heading an entire ministry that has four constitutional officers, the ombudsman, the prosecutor general, and the attorney general administratively under its wing, uh, for instance. And, and still you find people resisting uh, that change, you know, because people have not yet completely accepted that a woman can be at the top. Uh, for instance, I mean, we are likely, you know, when the ruling party takes over, uh, you know, leadership in 2025, we're going to have the first woman president 
in Namibia. Uh, but you can you can see you know in the corridors and and hushed conversations there is a little bit of discomfort about that reality for for some men not most of them of course so so I think these conversations are ongoing you know uh, Dr Amalia I, when I was reading Lean In by by the former CEO of uh, Meta. I don't know whether you've seen the title Lean In. And, and there was actually a supposition that the question around gender parity, gender equality may have actually stagnated. We've, we have beautiful policies. We've got some good work that has gone into the questions around gender equality. But I think there's also a good part that has kind of come to a standstill because we are now starting to focus on uh, the place of the boy child. We're starting to talk about women are overtaking men. So there's still a bit of work that needs to be done uh, in that area, I think. But there is there is a lot of progress. And I think the fact that I'm the Minister of Justice as a female from a school in Katutura, for example, is being a great role model. My picture is up on the walls at Aishipena in Katutura, for instance. So, you know, they, they, it makes the young girl and the young boy believe that someone that has come from a school in Katutura can become the Minister of Justice or can become the Prime Minister or can become the Deputy Prime Minister or even become the President of the country. My president always says, you know, if the story is that he was a child, a farmer's child, a farmer's child can also become a president. I think role modeling is important in that sense. You are representation when you talk about your background, where you came from, what you've achieved, where you are today and how that represents for both boys and girls. One of the key messages that came through in, in this conversation for me is about we cannot afford to be complacent. We have yes. to keep going. The battle's not won. And if we talk about younger men in the corridors who are not socialized um, in the way that one would like them to be with complete acceptance of women yes. in leadership roles, the message has still got to persist. I agree with you on, on there is a role that the representation plays. And, and, and so I take that point. But... Namibia, in terms of other African countries, is really miles ahead. When I look at data that comes out of the World Economic Forum every year, they publish their gender gap index, which goes across four dimensions. And Namibia ranks eighth in the world. It's the highest ranking sub-Saharan African country, attaining 80% gender parity, achieving 44% parity in political empowerment, uh, with 44% women parliamentarians, 32% female ministers, and as we've said, having female prime minister and deputy prime minister in place. Yes. Tell us what you're doing right and highlight some of the recent legal reforms or policies that have really been aimed at advancing gender equality in the country. I think what we did right um, is when the ruling party took a decision to have a policy entrenched in their constitution that says there must be 50-50 representation in every activity that the Swapo party undertakes. I think that's one of the things that we did right. The second thing that I think we did right is, is that at the UN level, for instance, when Namibia sponsored the conflict, I can't get the right uh, terminology now because I can't remember it, but there was an important resolution on women and peace that Namibia sponsored. 
And so uh, some of the things that I think we do get right is the fact that we actively participate at international and regional level in promoting gender equality more generally, but also specifically as it affects Namibia. The the third thing I think we're doing right is the fact that we have very good policies. You know, just recently, maybe a month or two ago, we reviewed our national gender policy to assess how far have we come. Uh, Is form and substance working together? And and so we're now working on developing the new 10 years of our gender policy. So we have a very strong gender policy. And obviously, the other thing is to recognize and have those conversations at a national level, whether it's in the National Assembly, whether it's in Cabinet, we have candid conversations about where we are finding ourselves. If 60% of our graduates are are girls and more and more girls are going to school, you know, what is the place of our boy child? And and we have an honest conversation about that. We're starting to have honest conversations about the place of the man in our society. Just recently, we discovered that, you know, there was a higher percentage of men committing suicide in Namibia. So we take stock. That's the other thing that I think we, we're doing right. But some of the other things uh, policy-wise is the fact that when the conversation happens, we take active steps. Earlier this year, a young lady published an article lamenting the absence of women in the Supreme Court and also uh, not having an equal number of women represented on, on the high court benches. And uh, following that article and and other conversations, you know, the Chief Justice appointed three women, although in acting positions, uh, two Namibians and one Zimbabwean judge, to the Supreme Court for a period of one year. So, you know, when the conversation starts, we actually take steps to to respond to it. And I think that's one of the other things that we're doing right. The The, the strengthening of legislation is important. All of the new legislation that we are passing, whether it's on land, uh, there's a huge land bill uh, that will be considered by the National Assembly uh, not not so long from now. Um, you know, conversations around gender-based violence, domestic violence, sexual violence, or, or children's rights, for instance. There is an emphasis on having focal areas, women, uh, persons with disabilities, Uh, marginalized communities, so that those kinds of policy frameworks, so in every conversation, every policy, every law that we pass or consider, those areas are often highlighted. And I think that helps with creating a culture of gender parity, if you'd like, and and really taking active steps to make it happen. Mm -hmm. There are some areas that we can improve, I think, uh, and, and for me, the improvement lies in the kinds of conversations that we have in our churches, in our bars, in our schools, you know, not just at government, in our private sector. Because if you have a supreme law that says this supreme law applies both vertically and horizontally, meaning it applies between state and citizen, but also between citizen and citizen, you should be able to have that kind of constitutional imperative brought to the people to say that when apartheid ended and when we got independence in 1990, one of the things we said under Article 23 of the Namibian Constitution is that we must 
uh, give preference to previously disadva uh, disadvantaged persons, but also we must recognize the unique place that women had during apartheid and even post-apartheid. And, and that gives you some kind of foundation to build on when you are making, when you're taking steps to change the dynamics of our society. The Ministry of Justice seems to have a very progressive outlook, one which is not afraid of change. And I think that that's so important in a world that is constantly evolving, that there'll always be changes. And it's necessary to, to readjust and adapt laws. And as we've spoken a lot about female representation and being able to, to bolster that support for women across all spheres. I like to ask you if you can please tell us about a, a few women who've been important trailblazers in Namibia. Well, certainly, certainly the Prime Minister, because, you know, she started at a very young age. I think she was 26, if I'm not mistaken, when she was the Director General of the National Planning Commission. And, and after that, she, she was for two terms, for 10 years, she was the Minister of Finance, and subsequently she became the Prime Minister now uh, in her 10th year. And I think that, you know, she, she is an important trailblazer because she, at the time, she was representing youth. And so she represents women, she represents um, black women, she represents, uh, at the time she represented young women. Uh, so, so she's certainly a, a trailblazer. The, the other one I think is, is the deputy prime minister because again, you know, she, she is likely to be our first female president post the elections, uh, in 2024. Um, she, she is one of our esteemed diplomats. In the country, you know, because she also heads, despite the fact that she is the deputy prime minister, she's also the minister responsible for international re relations and cooperation. But she's also, she was at the forefront of moving that particular resolution at the UN level. And we have a peace center in Namibia because of her, you know, supported by the UN and so forth. So she's an important one. And, and you know, she's the vice president of the ruling party. You know, she's gone through a grueling process of electioneering last year at the National Congress, at the Swapo Congress. So she's done some incredible work, both her and, and, and the prime minister in that sense. And then uh, someone that I'm a great admirer of is our first lady. Apart from the fact that she comes from a very strong private sector background where she was a managing director of an economic finance company that is still doing well today, that she started, that she was among the people that started. She was one of the first people that had an e-bank uh, you know, she was part of the cohort of people that started a bank in Namibia that was subsequently taken over when she became first lady, taken over by First National Bank. Um, then she did an awesome job recently where she opened a youth campus called Be Free. And it was created for young people to have a safe space. So uh, greatly admired uh, across across the world uh, from our experience with her. And, and she's actually the president now of, of the First Ladies uh, of Africa. So she's, she's done awesome work as the First Lady. Lastly, uh, one of the acting Supreme Court justices, Justice uh, S.S. Shiming Chase, uh, is a great trailblazer. You know, one of the few women uh, on the high court bench, now the acting Supreme Court uh, justice, already showing, you know, some of the jurisprudence that's coming from her uh, is, 
very responsive, you know, to to the kinds of dynamics that we find in our society. So I think I could go on. Maybe a last one is Emma Teofelis, the youngest deputy minister uh, in our executive, who is, you know, I think she's 23 or 24 now, uh, doing awesome work, has got, gotten some awards with the UN. Uh, there are many more women, of course, you know, many women on the streets of Kadutura, uh, selling kapana on the streets, you know, hustling to have their children go to university. So there are many women, um, too many to, to mention all of them. But if I had to single out a few, those would be the five that I would be, that I would be singling out. Thank you for sharing them with us and highlighting how strong women are in Namibia. And these are these are current women. They're, they're existing, they're fighting, they've got their fire yes. and their passions are burning brightly. Yes. As we come towards the end of the show, and time has gone yes. by so quickly, yes. one question that I ask all my guests is about some of the factors that they feel have contributed towards their success. Please, can you share with us what have been some of the, those aspects for you? I think, you know, those are questions around consistency, uh, adaptability, sincerity, integrity, you know, having, having a, a value proposition for your life, you know, having a moral compass for your life is extremely important. I think there isn't a one size fits all, but everybody must tell, ask themselves, why they find themselves in the place that they find themselves and how do they want to get, how do they want to leave that place and what kind of person will they be when they have left that space? So it's important for us to understand that. So for me, passion, integrity, sincerity, and consistency are are the keys to at least my success, I think. Fantastic values. And if you can cast your mind back, what would you say have been some of the pivotal moments in your life that have shaped you into who you are today? Well, a, a few. The one is when I got 80.4% average in grade six, many, many years ago, more than 20 years ago, maybe maybe even 30. And then going to high school, you know, for the first time, uh, being a head girl at that high school, um, getting a scholarship to study law in Cape Town and getting on a plane at the age of 16 unaccompanied. Uh, those for me are the highlights uh, of, of my life growing up. There are many more, but I think for me, those stand out. I must just on that point say, I mean, education has been in, an incredible part of your life and apart from your own studies, but being in academia. And given that we broadcast to a number of campus stations, if you could just share in a few words, I'm fully aware that being a student can be very, very challenging. And sometimes people don't stick with it. But knowing what education has done for you, what would be your advice to help people stick with the program and drive on and achieve their degrees? Have a reason that drives you. You know, for example, when I went to university, I said, I don't want to go back to poverty. I want to lift my people out of poverty. I want to have an education, for instance. 
and have passion for what you do. You know, you can't go wrong with it. Even when I was involved, and, and I was heavily involved in the student politics at the University of the Western Cape, particularly between 1993 and 96, because at the time, remember when I got there, Chris Honey got killed on the 10th of April in 1993. A transition was happening in 94. And, and so I was in that space, but I kept reminding myself, I need to leave this place with a degree. You know, so you 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 need to understand why you are there. That goal keeps reminding you why you need to do the things that you need to do to stick it out. And lastly, Minister, as we close out today's conversation, please share a few words of inspiration for girls and women who are listening to us on the continent. Lean in. It's not enough anymore to just sit at the table. I think read and read history because if you don't understand your history, you I don't know what kind of compass you're using to go forward. So understand history, read history, and then, of course, read and develop your own, whatever specialty you are in or whatever you're designed to do, develop yourselves around that. Um, understand who you are and define your boundaries without being apologetic. It's so, so important. Uh, and I think, of course, read the situation. Some people say read the room so that you can understand those around you. It's so important. What kinds of people are you interacting with? We can no longer just be naive in the kind of world that we live in. So it's it's important that you do. Be teachable. You know, I have not stopped learning. And then don't compromise on your key values and principles. It's your moral compass. There's no way, you know, if, if you're a sincere person, don't let anyone change that about you. And, and I think that for me is, is what, what keeps me going, is understanding my value proposition as a human being in this global world in which we live in. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been wonderful to host you, to share and to learn more about Namibia, to learn more about yourself and the work that you do. And we wish you all the very best in this portfolio to go on and keep attaining and driving your targets forward. Well, Dr. Amalia, thank you so much for the invitation. I think I was not even aware of this program, uh, but I'm going to be a staunch follower of it uh, going forward. And I hope that we can get opportunities to, to have more and more Namibian women on this platform of yours. You're doing wonderful work and, and you are a trailblazer yourself. You are a role model. And, and I look forward to further engagements. Uh, hopefully we can publish something together in the near future. So thank you so much for having me. And for the wonderful audience that are listening in or that will be listening in, I hope that there is one or two things that you can take from this conversation. Thank you. Thank you, Minister. You have been listening to Womanity, Woman in Unity, and we have been talking to the Minister of Justice from the Republic of Namibia, Yvonne Dasar.